right, what I'd, as, as we get settled in, what I'd like to do is have each of the panelists just briefly introduce yourselves. Uh, we, there are full bios in the back of the program. I think in the I don't necessarily think it makes sense for me to stand here and read them all. So I'd like just the panelists to introduce yourself and say just a word or two about what keeps you up at night or what wakes you up in the morning as you think about the, the landscape we're discussing here in terms of the future of television. So sort of random, I guess. Hi there, uh, Andy Hunter, and I'm from GSDNM Advertising in Austin, Texas. Uh, and um, I work there as a uh, uh, account planner, which is basically you know, helping to guide our clients into uh, new marketing ideas and, and frameworks for communication. I think what keeps me up at night, from my perspective, um, when I look at television and when I look at what we do, which is uh, create marketing campaigns, is um, the inertia within our business. We're, we're stuck in the spin cycle. Um, you know, there's clearly through uh, what Henry had just uh, ran through in terms of people's behavior and relationship with media, uh, things have changed dramatically. And uh, as we go forward, we need to think much differently in how we market and how we communicate uh, to people. And um, quite frankly, I don't think we're doing a very good job. So that keeps me up at night. Uh, my name is Mark Warshaw. I started a company called Flower Entertainment this year um, that consults media companies and sort of where we're going in the new media world. Uh, I'm also a producer on the TV show Smallville um, and working, starting to work with other TV shows as well right now. Um, I'm also a writer, a producer, and a director. I did a, done a couple of webisode series uh, for Smallville that sort of extended our stories into the online world. And um, we also have a lot of story extending websites that kind of talk to a lot of what we talked about earlier today already. Um, what keeps me up at night, or actually what gets me up in the morning, is I'm just excited. I think there's so many new possibilities out there, so many new avenues mm -hmm. for brands and for, um, for entertainers that we can just go anywhere right now. And I think it's a really exciting time to be in this world. Okay, I'm Josh Burnoff, I'm a principal analyst at Forrester Research, which is all of two blocks from here. Uh, I've been, uh, yeah, Forrester's been analyzing the effect of technology on business for the last 25 years, and I've been an analyst there for 11 years, spending most of my time looking at television. So we help our clients, uh, who are everybody, advertising agencies, advertisers, television networks, cable companies, consumer electronics companies, to understand what the future may be bringing and what challenges there are. Uh, we also survey 60,000 North American consumers and similar numbers in Europe and Asia every year. So I do know what you're thinking. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, based on the level of survey we have, there's only one of you in this audience that's actually in our survey. But. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, what keeps me up at night is what keeps our clients up at night, and that is uh, what are the challenges in the, the business. There's, there's basically two motivations, fear and greed, right? <laughs> fear is, is my business changing and am I going to end up out of a job as a result? And greed is, is somebody else making money that really I ought to have. Um, so we're looking at business changes that affect that, and that mostly relates to uh, the changes in advertising that are associated with digital video recorders 
and especially the delivery of uh, television across multiple channels like online and, uh, and mobile phones, uh, as opposed to let's all sit down at 9 o'clock and watch whatever NBC happens to be presenting today. So Josh, you're the forester guy. You do look at the big picture. Set the scene for us a little bit. What are some of the things that you're observing in Forrester about current trends? Well, I have to start by saying a couple of things. One is that when Henry told us that we'd be doing a panel that was two and a half hours long, I thought that's pretty surprising. But he's getting his comeuppance. He doesn't even have a chair. <laughs> Also, if I'd known everything was in black, I might have dressed differently. I feel like I'm using stealth technology down here. <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to speak to you folks, I think, from a, a perspective of, of thinkers who are, who are looking at this. I know you all have uh, interesting ideas about media. Uh, and from having analyzed this for 10 years and having made a bunch of predictions, some of which came spectacularly true and some of which came spectacularly false, uh, I got some advice on ways to think about this. And I've got four principles uh, of what you should think about when you think about what might actually happen. The first one is that you must not assume, as many in the TV world do, that nothing is really going to change. Because there is real change happening here. And that everything from digital video recorders to HDTV to, uh, to YouTube does have a business effect. Money is now shifting as a result of these things. But the other thing you must not assume is that everything will change. It is very easy to look at this and say, all right, so in the future you'll be able to look at anything you want across the internet. And that may be true at some point, but in terms of the pace of change and how it actually affects things, there will still be television 10 years from now. People will still be watching it. It will still have commercials in it. So don't assume everything changes. Don't assume nothing changes. I'd also say you must not assume, as uh, many of the academics I've spoken to do, that uh, it's about the ideas and not about the business. It is very much about the business. And the changes that happen have a lot to do with uh, very complex business relationships between people who produce content, people who broadcast it, uh, people who, who deliver it through cable wires, uh, the people who put the advertisements in it, and consumers, uh, all of which is, is all locked up in a way that makes it challenging for some of these ideas to actually come to pass. But of course, the opposite is the other false assumption, which is that business drives everything. What I've learned in 10 years at Forrester is that if you start with consumers and consumers' behavior, that's where you see the trends. And when consumers want something and you give them technology that they can use to get it, like a TiVo box, like a sling box, then they take things into their own hands. And at that point, the business has to adjust. So looking at those as sort of the poles, somewhere in the middle there is the truth about what's likely to happen. Uh, before I, f I finish, I, uh, I do want to talk about what I think are some of the big trends and shifts that we're seeing um, and what I hope will set the, uh, uh, sort of set the tone for a lot of what we're talking about here. So in 10 years uh, now, I mean, sort of give you a touch point, we are now up to, as of the beginning of 2005, over 12% digital video recorder penetration in the U.S. 
that's probably headed toward uh, 16 or 17 by the end of this year. We are up to, uh, at the beginning of this year, 16% high-definition television penetration. That's probably up above 20 by the end of this year. And more than one in four U.S. households has access to cable video on demand, and uh, well over half of those people are actually using it. So this technology, which when I started talking about it in, uh, in uh, the late 90s, people said, come on, you know, well, how long would it be before these things make a difference? It's making a difference now. What a difference is it making? Well, the first thing is the digital video recorders. People with digital video recorders tend to watch more than half of their programming recorded. And when they do watch that recorded programming, they tend to skip 80 to 90% of the commercials. And uh, I know that that's a huge problem because the television networks say it isn't. <laughs> okay? They all got together and held a press conference last fall, and all the heads of research of all of the competing television networks got together and held a joint press conference to say digital video recorder technology is good for us. It's actually a positive thing, so don't believe what you're hearing from Josh Burnoff at Forrester Research. And that was when I knew I'd made it as an analyst because they were talking about me. Um, uh, and what we're seeing when we survey advertisers is that they are definitely shifting significant portions of their investment from television to Internet as a result, in many ways, of this trend. The second big trend is the availability of video in multiple formats. If you look at what CBS was uh, five years ago, it was mostly a company that produced and broadcast television. Now you would have to say that CBS or Discovery or any other network is really a company that creates video of all types and then distributes it across many channels and is looking to distribute it across more in the future. And that's a very big shift in the industry and one that has happened with a, a rapidity that's breathtaking compared to any other change I've seen. And the third thing, and this relates directly to what you saw about fan content, is that television itself has now become a much broader and more stratified kind of environment. You've got a top tier, which consists of high-definition television content that's generally watched at the time that it's broadcast, uh, you know, expensive, relatively large audience productions like Lost, like uh, Studio 60. You have a second tier of cable content, stuff that's on Home and Garden Television and CNN and every other cable channel, which now increasingly is not only broadcast but is repeated. It's put in video on demand. Portions of it or variants of it is put on the Internet. And it really is syndicated. They've syndicated the hell out of it in order to get as much value as possible. You have a third tier of independent producers, like that Star Wars movie that you saw, people who aspire to be professional producers and can now place their content on YouTube or iFilm. Um, and you look at it and you say, wow, this is pretty good. You know, they don't have the audience yet, but they're getting there. And then you got dogs on skateboards and, and uh, you know, uh, music video uh, parodies and, and Mentos and Diet Coke. Yeah. Right? So anybody can be there. And the, the thing that's different now is that every single element of that pyramid can make money. They just don't all make money the same way. So what we call television isn't broadcast anymore. It isn't large audience anymore. And it isn't delivered in a single way anymore. Uh, they all have their own economics. They all have their own business models. And it's extremely confusing 
which is great because when people are comfortable and understand everything, they don't need help from Forrester Research. <laughs> <laughs> so Mark, walk us through this from a content producer's side. From, what does this mean for shows like Smallville in terms of digital distribution, digital promotion? Well, a lot about, it, it, it's just putting it out there. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of taking the same sort of idea, which is let's put it out there on the net and let's see what happens. We did it a couple years ago. Uh, when we did our first webisode series, we put something out there. We didn't know how many people, we put on AOL first, and it was interesting because, you know, the Smallville fan really wasn't an AOL user. Um, but we saw message boards out there that said, you know, I think this week uh, we'll sign up for AOL just so we can get some webisodes. And that was interesting at the beginning. And, um, but we said, you know, what are we going to do about this after? It's on AOL. Let's put it on the WB.com and see who will come to it. And we saw you know, tons of people come, and they came from all over the world. So that changed our thinking. We said, all right, well, you know, we didn't really realize that we're big in Russia or the Philippines. Because um, they haven't even gotten the first run shows yet there, but they're watching our webisodes. So they're getting little pieces of uh, our, you know, our story before it happens, and they're getting it on the web. And they're talking about it. They're putting it on their fan sites. And you know, we're starting to activate people a little bit. Um, and that, you know, that it moves fast. So we started catering in our next series to that kind of fan, um, our global fan. And um, it's, it, it's just the way, it's, that's what's exciting about it. Because each time we learn a little bit more, we are just throwing things out there like all over the place. Um, and we adjust with each thing that we learn because we have, we've got the message boards, we've got the letters the fans send to us. And, um, then we just start catering things to our DVDs to that kind of fan because we keep hearing from them what they like. Um, and this year we're 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 going to go to we we were slow to go to the the mobile phones. Uh, this year we're going to put something out on mobile phones, but we know that it's also going to go on the, the web after that. So we'll get to see kind of what fans went to the phones first and then went then go to the web after that. Um, so that's sort of where we're at. We're still in that. It's just the beginning. Right? We don't have no clue where it's really going to go. Very good. Bring us, from the advertiser's point of view, what, what, do, what do these trends mean to the people that you're working with at GSDM? Well, it means that we have a very tough job now. Um, from, you know, as, as TV changes, as our world changes, the biggest issue that we deal with is, you know, the, the model of how we go to business has, has basically, within a couple of years, completely turned on its head. Uh, so in my industry, we've often, like Hollywood, we're looking for a big bang, big audience um, uh, for the buck. Uh, so when, when you're used to this world of speaking to the masses through the conduit of television, uh, all of your metrics are based in that. Your market economy is based on that. Um, the way that you do uh, your creative and the way that we're wired to think about ideas are all driven off of this platform of television, um, which so, so what you're seeing now is this move away from um, the TV medium being at the top to it be, being equalized. So everything sits on, 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 a, on a parallel or on a, on a horizon together, um, which I think we've all seen uh, the networks, advertising agencies, uh, marketers, and, 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 and business folks who are looking to talk to customers um, change what they're doing, but the backbone um, still pretty much remains the same and it hasn't changed. So if you look at uh, the business side, 
Um, most of our revenue generation comes from the trading floor of buying and selling media, which for the most part is 30-second commercials. And as that starts to change, well, our, our business model needs to change. That doesn't happen overnight. I think that contributes to the fact that, um, uh, to the point earlier, you know, we're not going to have Google TV overnight. We'll get there, um, but um, not so much from the consumer's perspective. From a business perspective, this can't change overnight. Uh, second, you've got the metrics. We've got clients, um, we would love to tell these incredible stories, walk away from a singular message within a TV spot, and tell stories transmedia. Uh, but that makes a lot of our clients very uncomfortable because they don't know how to measure that. That's new, uh, and it doesn't have a, a metric tied to it. And there's not a way to take all the metrics to say, I'm spending in internet, I'm spending in TV, I'm having a conversation, and what's my return? Um, and again, when all the metrics are based in uh, this idea of delivering a mass audience, um, that, that puts us in a precarious pos position. I think the last thing that, it, that affects our business is um, the way that we come up with ideas. Uh, if uh, a creative person, if a creative industry is driven in basically creating films, 30-second films, um, that have a singular message or a simple message, and pretty much overnight we're in a position to now tell stories that parse out in chapters across media, well, that's a much more difficult job. And I think our creative folks um, hold some of the burden of this shift in, in media behavior and, and often will be critiqued. But understand, changing the way you think after being trained a specific way and working in the medium for so long is really difficult. Um, so we're, we're in a difficult position, but we're in an uh, excellent position in the fact that there's so many more mediums to work with to talk to folks. And um, I think the key to all this is learning through experimentation. Um, I think trying things new. Um, I think we're poised to do that. I think we're ready to do that. Um, I don't know if all of our clients are yet. Uh, but it's, it's taking that risk. It's um, looking for you know, risk for return and, and learning from um, these new experiences and, and experimenting with new media. Yeah, I, I want to challenge people here for a minute. Um, and this, this is to help understand the answer to the question, well, why don't they just change? So <laughs> your job is you're a media buyer and you're working for uh, an advertising agency and you've just been told that the advertiser wants to place a million dollars worth of television advertising and they want to put it in front of, let's say, uh, men 25 to 44 years old. How much money do you get out of that million dollars to place that? What do you think? Anybody know? Right, the media placement agency. It, it, they don't do how that for do they free. Make? How much do they make? Yeah, how, how much do they get paid to place a million dollars worth of advertising? They, they get $30,000 to place a million dollars worth of advertising. So they have to be extremely efficient. Now, there is a very efficient market. All of the advertisements are the same size. They're all 30 seconds. And as a result, they're all interchangeable, which creates a market. It's like the stock market. All the shares of Coca-Cola are the same, and all of the ads are the same, which means that you can be very efficient and play off uh, you know, uh, CNN versus um, you know, uh, uh, the CW versus... CBS and try and decide where it's, where it's going to be most effective. But it's that same sameness, it is that equivalence that makes those ads so easy to skip on T 
TiVo because you, having watched television for the last 20, 30, 50 years, depending on how old you are, you know in your gut how long 30 seconds is. So you just bloop, 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 and then you're gone. So it is, it is the efficiency of this market that makes it so persistent, and it is the sameness of these ads that makes them so vulnerable. And that, at the heart of it, is the reason why the television industry has not just turned itself inside out. And you know, to, to the credit of, credit of people like Betsy, uh, I am amazed at the level of activity now of people trying stuff out. But they can't just say, all right, well, we're, we're now we're a multi-channel uh, delivery platform, and we're not just a broadcaster anymore. We're, we're at that point right now, and that's something that the unions are going to have to figure out, and, and the networks are going to have to figure out. And it, it's really, it's right there at that, that moment. Because we've actually, we've put it out there in the marketplace, and the fans want it. Uh, the advertisers want to be part of it. So the, something's got to give at some point. You can't not have it anymore. Um, but it's going to be very difficult to tell these stories <laughs> and have them be valuable to the fans if the actors who are part of the stories aren't the actors who are in the shows. Yeah. This is an important transition point because we're going from fear to greed, right? <laughs> right. Fear is, yeah. uh, I don't know how to do this, and greed is, oh, well, I'm an actor, so <laughs> I'm in the union, which means i got to get my cut. Well, that's a positive statement because it means there's money being made and people want to get their piece of it. Oh, well, let's... Fascinating discussion so far. Let's let's talk about some of the, sh the changes and assumptions that are being brought about by this. One is appointment-based television, which has sort of been a foundation for networks for some time. What happens to appointment-based television in the world of video on demand, where sometimes the content's coming up before the broadcast, it's available after? How, how, how are people's relation to that content starting to change? Well, I, I'd say... Now, people, people say to me sometimes, what is the largest change that's happened to television or will happen to television at the time you've been studying it? And I have no question in my mind that it is the schedule. Because, I, you know, again, looking at my original principles, everything changes, nothing changes, it's somewhere in the middle. But the most dramatic shift is that people will not be watching television at the time that it, it is created. And if you look at the ratings of the most popular television shows, they've gone down in the last 20 years from, you know, 35% to 25 to 18 to 16. Now if you're getting 14, you're doing all right. Uh, you know, there are things that people will watch at the same time, and those things will continue to be extremely valuable, right? OJ Simpson more, verdict. more valuable. Right, because, because they're the only time that you can be sure that you're going to get 55 million people watching at the same moment. American you know, Idol. Final right, final episode of these reality shows. But the rest of television is moving away from the schedule. And that, that raises some interesting problems because if the advertisement says, you know, now it's the last day to get in on the new sales spectacular at, at your Ford truck dealer, well, it isn't anymore because it's three days later that you're watching it. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that's, that raises some interesting challenges. Now, on the other hand, the good part about this is that, that you can now assemble your audience over a long period of time. These things have a very long life, and if you want to buy all those episodes of The Office that you missed on iTunes and watch them all, or watch your CSI episodes on, uh, on uh, video on demand from Comcast, that, can, that show can continue 
to earn, even though while it was on, you were you know going out to dinner with your your boyfriend or uh, uh, watching some other program on another channel. Um, I, I will say this though that the the right there are these guys at CBS and every other network who are breaking their brains and they're moving around the little things mm -hmm. on the time slots just to make sure everything is set up so that they have a little bit of an edge versus this new show that's coming out on, on ABC. And that has been the, a lot of the power of the television network is around that schedule. And in the future, they will continue to have power, but they'll have power more like movie studios where the power is in bankrolling and promoting programs, not so much in saying, you know, we're going to own Thursday night. I think the, the NBC example, uh, I think, is a great one. And when, when you have a gun to your head and your business isn't doing well and when you're not, your ratings aren't great, uh, that fosters change pretty quick. And NBC has done some interesting things on that note. If you, went, if you look back months ago, they were the first to slap lawsuits on YouTube when the SNL videos got posted. Um, but very quickly, they turned around to realize, okay, there's something here that we can... Um, that we can capitalize on. Uh, so, so there is that change, and I, I do think that's indicative of the fact that appointment television is starting to, to dissolve, and it will dissolve. Um, it won't completely go away. Sports. Sports is appointment television, and it will, always will be. Um, there's not too many of us sports fans that want to watch the game two days later. Um, so I think that, that uh, remains. This idea of participatory media, uh, I think that drives appointment television and will continue to um, American Idol, love it or hate it. But the fact that it is ongoing, that it's frequent, that there's a story to be told there that you want to know and you don't want to get beat to the punch from your friends at the water cooler the next day, um, whether we want to admit it or not. So I think that's really important. I think it, it's also going to be really interesting. Um, Murdoch, uh, and I don't know, some of you may have heard about this, um, has started to invest in um, create CGM for television programming. Um, and who knows how this is going to play out. But again, I think this could lead to appointment television where he's embedding technology so folks can mash up their content um, within their set-top box, uh, within their, uh, their cable or satellite provider. So I think that's another thing that could drive some of the appointment television. But I think for the most part, what you're going to find is appointment TV is more just you know, getting to the on-demand, um, going to your home TV box and seeing um, media that's served up to you because of your behavior, because of the way. And, and that drives more relevance than, than, than appointments. And I think that's, that's, that's where we're going. And that puts Apple in a really interesting place as, as we go forward, because with appointment television, so assuming appointment television erodes, uh, what's my reason to go to a network anymore? You know, if, if Apple has not just great product, but has a relationship, it stands for something, it's got, it has a brand it's attached to, uh, there's a reason to go there. And I, th I think the, the thing that should keep Iger and Moonves and others awake at night is the fact that w what is their brand, really? Uh, I think Fox stands for something. Um, I, don't, I don't know what CBS... <laughs> I don't know what ABC stands for, and um, that puts them in a in a in a, in a rough spot. Uh, and you know, as everything goes so transactional, I don't have to turn on my local CBS station. 
If, if everything's transactional, if it's per episode, if it's per series based, then I'm, I'm, I'm really attached to the content. I'm not attached to the network anymore. I think there's ways around that. I think you know, as networks, you know, as, as CBS, you know, there was running jokes that it wasn't CBS anymore, it was the CSI network. Um, but you know, they, they caught on to a formula, that, formula there. They, uh, they attached themselves to a, a fan culture, to an audience. Um, that was pretty explosive for them and put them in a very different business situation over time. Uh, I think that is going to be really important. I think attaching yourself to properties and owning writers, owning um, uh, artists that can help shape who your brand is is going to be really important. How long is it before J.J. Abrams or Josh Whedon or some producer who's got a very strong cult following that he knows will represent a niche market for his goods, goes directly to the web, doesn't go through CBS or NBC, and can do so at a reasonable price point and still generate yeah. the cost I mean, back because I mean, he doesn't uh, need in to a way, here's, here's a case in point there is um, uh, the, right, the music labels uh, started to make all these deals with iTunes and uh, and the other companies to distribute their artists' content. And uh, there was a band that I'm sure you guys are all familiar with called Fish that had a huge fan following. And they did something none of the labels did. They put their concerts up on their site and allowed people to download them in unprotected MP3 format, which none of the labels would want to go along with for the most part because they're worried about releasing unprotected content. But Fish oh, said, dear. we have a relationship with our fans. There's a lot of them. And you know, we don't, we don't worry so much about a major uh, record label deal because they, they'll find our stuff. And hey, we'll make money from that. Now, the, the interesting thing about that is that there were not 10,000 other bands that were doing that. And in fact, the bands who were successful, you know, U2 is not doing that. Madonna's not doing Madonna's, well, Madonna uh, was not doing that except through her relationship with, with uh, Warner, right? And when you are an artist, then generally you find it a whole lot easier to delegate the job of distribution and promotion to somebody with a lot of money that's got a lot of experience mm -hmm. there. Now, if you're Stephen King, the kind of deal you make with a publishing company now is very different you're basically hiring them to distribute your, your book, and you can go to any publisher you want, uh, and so you get a pretty good deal, pretty uh, you know, much higher royalty than, than somebody that nobody's ever heard of. But most producers, even if they go out and they start to get a direct relationship, they still would like to get to the point where they can tap into somebody who can distribute through video on demand, through, through broadcast television, through mobile phones, you know, on YouTube. Uh, Stephen King, the kind of deal you make with a publishing company now is very different. You're basically hiring them to distribute your, your book, and you can go to any publisher you want, uh, and so you get a pretty good deal, pretty uh, you know, much higher royalty than, than somebody that nobody's ever heard of. But most producers, even if they go out and they start to get a direct relationship, they still would like to get to the point where they can tap into somebody who can distribute through video on demand, through through broadcast television, through mobile phones, you know, on uh, Yahoo or other places where they don't have to do all the work themselves. And that's, I mean, that's really the heart of the matter. If, you, if you're an artist, to, to uh, jump into the deep end and walk away from 
uh, broad distribution networks and the investment power of the media companies is really hard, but I think you're cl it's clearly going to happen more, um, and it's already happening, um, more so in the, I, I would suppose, in the movie industry. Um, maybe some, uh, two examples come to mind. One is, uh, I think Morgan Freeman yesterday uh, was on uh, the cover of newspapers um, talking about his uh, own uh, movie company and his intent to distribute over the web. So there's one example. The other example is George Lucas. Um, the, so here's another person who has the freedom, the flexibility, the power, and the money to kind of go out on, on his own. But he's, he's come back and said, I'm, I'm not going to do blockbuster. It's not a blockbuster world anymore. I, you know, we, we can't continue to work in this world where um, we need to make all of our revenue back uh, for a movie in a single weekend. So he's, he's stepped back and gone the opposite direction and said, I'm going to do 30 to 50 short films a year. And they're going to be digital, and they're going to be distributed over the web. And that's, that, that's, that's a big shift, but I think we'll see more and more of that. Okay, there's a some question from the audience out there. Hi, uh, Josh. I'm wondering if you and the other folks um, up there have any thoughts about um, America Online's kids brand, KOL. It's kind of slid out from the subscription model of AOL. It's now on the web. Um, and they're taking shows that they've produced originally as web content. And those shows are now being distributed on Cartoon Princess Natasha, I believe, is on uh, Cartoon Network now. Um, and I believe they've also created a block on, I want to say it's CBS. Um, it, it's just kind of interesting that, a, that a, a web company has, a, a, well, what was a subscription company is now becoming a web company, which is now creating content for broadcast and cable. Yeah, can, can you identify yourself, by the way? So oh, hi, uh, Dave Skorzik um, uh, with a uh, production company called Eat Your Lunch. Uh, well, this is, you know, what's, it's very expensive to find good television shows. Mm -hmm. So the people at CBS, uh, they actually have a facility in Las Vegas where they get people from all around the country to come in and they screen pilots and then they have these elaborate meters where you say, oh, I, you know, I really liked it when the actress came in or I thought that joke was funny and you know, would you tune in and see this? Would you tune in and see it if it were on opposite uh, loss, that kind of thing? Um, so, you know, you spend millions of dollars on that, and then you find out, nah, it's not really that good. And maybe it is good. You put it on television for a couple of episodes, and then you find out it isn't really that good. It's a whole lot easier if you can just sit around and wait and watch stuff percolate up through the Internet, and you say, oh, oh people seem to like that one. All right, hey, come on in. Let's talk to you. Let's, let's make a deal. So... This, these second, third, and fourth tiers, especially the third and fourth tiers of content, they generate uh, talent. They generate ideas that are inevitably going to make their way up into this first and second tier and actually get on TV. And the reverse is happening, too, where you end up with shows that maybe weren't good enough to be on television, but they go on to, they weren't good enough to be on broadcast, so they get onto cable channels. Or maybe they fall off of that, and then they end up in VOD. The anime network uh, is on Cablevision, and it's full of stuff that doesn't have a broad enough audience to get into a broadcast television channels, but people are looking at it in video on demand. Once you have those tiers, you have a lot of flexibility for stuff to move up and down. And if you're EP Bird, and you're, you're, you know, have made all of this stuff with uh, Coca-Cola and Mentos, people come to you and say, hey, let's make a deal. Maybe we can put together a show for you. A lot of the studios right now, they're looking at it like 
you're looking at the web like it's a farm system for professional sports. Here's a place where I can make nice, cheap programming, put it out there in the ether, see if people react to it. If they do, and they do it intensely, can we push it up to the next notch, make it a television show? And when it becomes a television show, it's a television show with a built-in audience already, because people found it on the web. And we, or we could even make the higher jump and go up to, the, to, a, to a, a studio movie. Yeah. What's happened here is the cost of production for television has been reduced. You can make something pretty good on a very low budget with Final Cut Pro and a, a camera that costs you, you know, $385. Uh, the cost of distribution on the internet is zero. It's called YouTube, right? <laughs> on the other hand, the cost of mass distribution is still expensive. It's very expensive to put a show on even, you know, uh, uh, you know, FX or or a, a cable channel. So down there, where all of the costs are low, that's where people try stuff out. Um, and there has always been a hundred times as much talent as could possibly be actually successful. So the other ninety-nine percent that don't make it on are now they can, you know, their aspiration instead of you know the actress going to to L.A. and hoping to be discovered, the filmmaker puts his stuff on YouTube and hopes to be discovered. Okay, question down here. Hi, uh, Paul Levitz from uh, DC Comics. I hear a consistent trend in all of the conversation that you're not addressing head on and that I think also has possibly a, a, a missing piece in it, which is a lot of the phenomena you're talking about are a sort of disintermediation where the power of the intermediaries that used to exist, whether it's the network and distribution or the financier for creativity to have the advertising dollar channel in one fashion, go through to the distributor, and then move out to the creative talent through some form of financier or broker, now gets split apart. The movie business used to typify how it put films together, separating production financing and distribution as different elements within their master agreement, and you're talking about a fractionalization of all that. What I'd be interested to hear your comments on are both whether you feel that trend is uniformly true, and second, whether there isn't kind of a missing piece to all of this, that we're simply going to have to move to a different level of intermediary to make all of this happen. When you start talking about a creative person wanting to be their own producer, J.J. Abrams isn't going to be in a great rush to write his own check for fin financing 22 episodes of a serious television production. He may, in fact, have that money, but he probably isn't going to put a bet of that size because very few people are in Lucas's class or Spielberg's class being able to do it. And even Spielberg, who could have created the whole DreamWorks shell some years ago as a way of using other people's money to do it in a situation like that. Do we end up with new forms of intermediation in all of this, new services that are necessary in a fractionalized advertising world the other piece to the, I guess, Josh's point on the million dollars worth of media buying, it's real easy to earn that 30000 by buying a few spots with one vendor on CBS. It's a real pain in the ass to earn that $30,000 by investigating 47 different internet 
providers and guessing which of them might attract an audience based on the creativity of what they're offering that day. There isn't yet a pattern and a path. Does there become a different intermediary in a situation like that that's either aggregating or that's analyzing in order to build it up, or does more money get consumed in the process of intermediation? I mean, look at it this way. It's 1995. What's the most powerful company or companies in the music business? It's uh, Walmart, Tower Records, right? These are the companies that control the distribution. If you get into Walmart, you're going to sell a lot more than if you don't get into Walmart. Mm -hmm. Okay, now it's 2006. Tower Records is bankrupt. Uh, and what's the, what are the most powerful companies in the music business? MySpace. MySpace, Apple, right? Apple's got a lock on distribution of paid downloads now. They got like a 75% market share, 80% market share. Okay, and the music companies are saying, oh geez, you know, it's now, you know, they saved us, now, now we gotta negotiate with them and they have a monopoly. Uh, so when you ask about disintermediation, in my mind, there are new companies now rising up that are trying to create enormous efficiencies in the distribution of this media. Now, you'll always be able to put a video up on your site and have people look at it. But if you want big money, you've got to have big audiences. And uh, you know, Google buying YouTube is a lot about trying to create a new intermediary for video delivery. AOL wants to be in that business. And, there are other models uh, very close to here, another block in the other direction is Brightcove. And they have a fascinating idea, mm -hmm. which is if you go to them and say, I would like to put up, you know, I'm, a, yep. I'm uh, such and such a media company and I have uh, 5,000 videos that I'd like to put up on my site. They say, we'll take care of that. We'll give you tools. We'll, we'll make it really easy for people to navigate. We'll have a tagging system. Uh, they'll be able to, other people will be able to take the video on your site and put it on their site. And we'll do that all for free. Oh, and by the way, uh, we do want to have the right to sell advertisements against that. And we're going to sell advertisements against your video and everybody else's video. So now they're suddenly representing millions of videos across the internet. And we'll write you a check every month that'll give you a portion of the money that comes from, uh, from that advertising. Now, uh, Brightcove just made an announcement about a whole bunch of things which taken together basically says, hey, I'm the new intermediary here. And uh, you know, NBC has NBBC, the national, what is it, national broadband company, uh, which is trying to do something similar. So you, you see now both the old media companies and new folks trying to come in and be that intermediary. And that's in, in 10 years of analyzing technology, I see people rise in power and I see people fall in power. But in general, this individual to individual thing becomes most efficient when there's somebody like eBay or uh, um, or Google helping out to get it to get it working or MySpace. For for the ad industry, the uh, from a media perspective, so getting into that media buying question. Uh, right now, we're the 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 word that we throw out and we've been throwing it around for 20 years is integration. So. If you look at how our, our market system works now, you've got a media trader for TV, a media trader for interactive, for print, for the different silos within uh, marketing uh, industry, within the vehicles that distribute a message. And I, I think what you'll begin to see 
is that instead of working within those silos, the, the one way that we're going to start to aggregate our buys and, and how we actually distribute our content is it, it's going to be much more like a mutual fund manager. So what's the portfolio for my communication and how, how can I buy to deliver? Um, what's the model that work for against different categories? But until you get to the point where um, you've got the people and the prowess and the expertise to, to work as that mutual fund manager, as that portfolio manager, um, you're still going to have this system where it's like I go to the networks, I go to the print publications, I go to the other media companies. But that's where we need to be. And, and that's, that's where we become the aggregators ourselves um, that are helping our clients get their messages into the market. Let me just pop one other thing into your brains here. Remember all of those uh, devices I was talking about? Well, you can't navigate a million videos on a set-top box because the remote is just not designed for that, which means that either the manufacturer, the set-top box, or the service provider is now going to be making choices about which things to put in there mm -hmm. and which things will be easy to find and which things will be promoted for the most. Now, there's a word for a company that does that. It's called a portal, right? That portal, you know, TiVo will have a portal for internet video, and you'll have to pay to be at the top of that list. Uh, and every one of these companies is going to be designing that. So you may think these are hardware companies, but they are going to be, in many ways, the intermediaries that, that arise in the next generation. All right, we've got some more questions out in the audience. Uh, Nolan? Um, I'm Nolan Bowie. I teach at the uh, Kennedy School of Government, Harvard University. And Josh began uh, this discussion saying, uh, with the assumption that television would still be around in 10 years. Well, I don't question that, but I'd like for the whole panel to look over the horizon just two and a half years from now. Um, currently, the FCC has mandated that sometime during the first quarter of 2009, the completion of the transition to all digital for over-the-air television. Uh, this has a lot of disruptive impact on the industry. Um, with uh, 6 megahertz of uh, bandwidth, which currently send one analog channel, uh, in a digital format you can have one high-definition channel, or as many as four to six standard-definition channels, or as many as 20 to 24 lesser-definition channels. So you increase the number of channels to dramatically, uh, anywhere from, say, 1,600 to uh, anyway, from 1,600 to uh, 9,600 to uh, 33,000, say. Uh, this further fragmentizes the, uh, fragments the uh, audience, atomizes it almost, but it has a, uh, um, even undermines the, um, not only the advertising base uh, and smaller audiences, but undermines the regulatory authority for government to uh, issue monopoly licenses to some and not to all. Uh, because it undermines the uh, compelling state interests for treating, say, broadcasting differently from, say, cable or satellite or newsprint. Uh, since 1927, the regulatory authority is based on something called the scarcity rationale. And as you've been discussing this morning, many more new channels, digital channels, are coming online every day, which undermines that. Um, would you care to discuss what this new, what kind of television is going to exist after that? Will uh, the uh, network still maintain, uh, be group owners of uh, television stations and control of channels exclusively? Yeah, I, I, I want to address the transition first. We have some questions out 
uh, in a survey that's taking place right now, we'll have, a, I'll have the results back early next year, about the transition. And at that point, I will be able to conclusively prove that consumers have no clue what this is all about. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to what I call a little old lady march on Washington, which is, which is what happens when uh, you know, 20 million, the 20 million people who don't get their TV for, from cable or satellite, who are, of course, for the most part, the poorest and less technology uh, savvy people in the population suddenly find out that their TVs don't work and that if they're willing to hook up a subsidized box that they can get down uh, at Circuit City and can figure out how to hook that up, then maybe they can still get the free over-the-air television. But that's, that's a short-term thing, and believe me, in 2009, I'll be happy to be on CBS News talking about the little old lady march on Washington. <laughs> the, I don't think, you know, the, the scarcity rationale is already below. Uh, it's based on those people who only get over-the-air television, but that is only 20% of the population. And everybody else has got cable or satellite, and that number creeps up a little bit. Uh, you know, given the choice between giving healthy food to your children and giving up your cable television bill, most people are not going to give up their cable television bill at this point. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, that, that having been said, I, I don't know. I mean, I... I find it often confusing how the FCC makes these decisions, and uh, you know I think that they they will there's a the people who, the broadcasters and the FCC are continue to have an interest in getting uh, broadcast television to have public interest programming on it, and to to uh, you know to make sure that all the other people who are not just watching broadcast have a variety, and I. I, I guess uh, that has to continue. I mean, I can tell you from, from working with television station groups that while they're very interested in multicasting, the ability to have those multiple channels on, for the most part, they understand that their continued survival and, and success depends on having one really good, high-quality channel. And uh, especially if you're an affiliate of ABC or CBS or Fox, that's... That's what you do, and while you may have ancillary programming that runs alongside of that, when it's 9 o'clock at night, you're going to have whatever the equivalent of lost is on, in high definition, and that's generally what, what you're planning on doing. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the independent channels, they may start multicasting, but what they end up having is a bunch of channels that people don't want to watch that much anyway. Yeah, in terms of television, the multicasting, one would hope that we're not going to have another 1,700 channels with nothing on it. Um, but so I think there's other mediums where, uh, as we go into this HD world, the digital broadcast world, uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity. Look at radio. HD, HD radio um, for local radio broadcasters is a huge opportunity to, to dissect some of their content, to be more relevant for folks. But on the TV side, you know, let's remember it's not about channels anymore, it's about relevance, and it's about um, having that filter for the content that you want. Uh, so and I, the, the search engines, um, the cable companies, and soon the telecom companies um, will be that filter uh, so that people can get to the content that they want, and, and, and channels just don't matter as much anymore. Okay, over here. My name is 
My name is Surya. I work at, a, uh, at an advertiser, so this is obviously of, uh, of, of interest. And so I have a question. I want to challenge I have two questions. Uh, the first one is, I want to direct this at Andy, so I want to challenge something that Josh had asked, um, or Josh had stated earlier. <laughs> Josh, you stated that you, you thought because of, of TiVo, 12% adoption, you know, different things, it's forced um, a lot of advertisers to make different choices and to go on the internet and other such mediums. And I, I would challenge that, and I'd love Andy's perspective. Uh, I would challenge it and say, if advertisers have shifted any dollars away from TV, it's because they're going where their consumers are, not necessarily because they feel like TV has lost effectiveness. So they see the internet as another channel to, to reach their consumers, and therefore they're going, they're shifting some dollars there. And that's a greater factor than thinking that TV has lost its effectiveness. So any weakness in the upfront, whatever you see, is just a consequence of maybe fragmentation and not diminishing even though that sounds kind of like a, uh, you know, like an oxymoron, but it's, I think it's more to that than one, one losing its effectiveness. I think going forward, that realization may occur if, if that's proven, but I think for many large advertisers, no one says, okay, you know what, TV's not working, I need to move dollars to, ad to the internet. I don't, I've never heard that um, from a large advertiser, and I, I don't feel that way. I know Andy from the planning side could probably talk to that. And I'd just like to throw out the second question so I can hand the microphone back. And this is for, for Betsy. Is Google friend or, or foe? I know there was an article last week, um, or a blog entry that was much discussed that talked about how Google wants to own, um, wants to become the de facto operating system for advertising. And as we talked, I think there was a great segue about disintermediation. How do we feel if Google's trying to own like contextual, you know, anytime if there's, an, there's a, if they're trying to get to the point where they could serve up real time ads on TV because 60 Minutes or, or CBS News is doing a story on a topic that's relevant to an advertiser. You know, ha, ha, friend or foe, I mean, obviously, it's not going to be a one-word answer, but I'd love your perspective on that. Thanks. So I just want to take two seconds to give you the data behind, behind <laughs> what I said before I turn things over to Andy. So we did a survey in conjunction with the Association of National Advertisers early this year. It was the third time we've done it. We do it every two years. And when you think national advertisers, you want to think big soft drink companies, car companies, you know, telecom companies, the people who put most of the commercials on television. And in this survey of national advertisers, and these were people who make decisions about advertising that answered, we said, uh, are you, you know, if there's 30 million digital video recorders, are you planning on shifting your money away from television? And uh, about 60, 65 percent, I don't remember the exact number, but but a clear majority said, yes, we are planning on shifting our money away from television, and by, we're planning on reducing our television budget by at least 20%. And when we said, where's the money going? They said, internet. Now, the other thing that happened is when we presented this data at the TV forum of the Association of National Advertisers, right in front of David Poltrack, I might add, um, we asked the audience there, so now you want to imagine three, 400 advertisers and advertising agencies, and we did a poll right there with buttons, and we said, what is the biggest threat to television advertising right now? And they did not pick digital video recorders as the number one answer. They said clutter. Too many ads, which means each ad doesn't get enough attention. The, the TV industry has bit by bit added more and more commercials because it always makes more money to add more commercials, and yeah, each commercial may be worth a little bit less, but when you add it up, it's much better that way. But that's monopoly thinking, because that says, hey, people can't get their TV any other way except with all these commercials in it. Well, now they can. So I'm, I'm not here to tell you that, 
that you know advertisers think as a group, or they've all decided television is worthless. I'm just saying, with a whole bunch of anecdotal evidence and talking to advertisers, and with this survey, we see people saying they're going to shift their dollars. Now, if you look at the actual money paid every year, it hasn't gone down yet. But there's a clear rumbling in the industry that, that the value isn't there. I'd like to quickly rebut that. I would say it's the same as when, if you survey people during an election year, it just, ha just happens. And my friend from the Kennedy School of Government could, could maybe respond to that. But I think people say they hate negative TV commercials. And, you know, they're not likely to, they don't listen to them, they don't vote based on them. Why do people keep doing it? Because it's effective. And I would say if you survey people, they say, you know what, negative TV commercials about politicians, I don't like it. It's garbage, it doesn't work. And then they go and they vote, and they say, oh, that guy hates his cat. He kicks his cat every day when yeah. he comes home because they heard it on a TV commercial, and they vote based on that. And I would say advertisers say one thing, and they're still acting a certain way. Do I think that's going to continue? I don't know. You, you, you will be right every year until the year you're wrong. <laughs> Andy, why don't, why don't you address this? Clearly, we're looking at an issue that's very polarizing, particularly in our industry, which, let's face it, we're, we're TV-focused, and, and we're so TV-focused that we're, to a degree, in a state of denial, although we've, we've, we've started to move away from that. You see it in the Internet spending, and um, the increase in Internet spending. But when it comes right down to, it goes back to what I had mentioned earlier, to your point, people's media usage has completely changed. Uh, and um, we're still looking at broadcast. We're still looking at TV as the pinnacle of that media landscape, and that's wrong. I mean, that is wrong. It does, it's not saying that TV is, you know, to say it's wholly ineffective is not fair. It's just its, it's role and its importance has just um, put on, on, a, uh, on, a, on a plane with the other mediums to an extent. and and. It's also put us in a place where we have to create these media ecosystems where there's several different media vehicles working together, going back to this idea of storytelling, not just you know, uh, preaching a message through the platform or through the speaker of, of, of television. Um, so I think that's it's interesting to note. But in terms of TV's importance and relevance, we do a lot of research for our clients to 18 to 24-year-olds. All you need to look is the anecdotal uh, quotes from, from these folks. TV isn't important to them. Um, they still watch it. It's still relevant to them to a degree. But a lot of folks we talk to just say, well, TV isn't important. Or clearly, they're doing 12 other different things, instant messaging friends, talking on the phone, on their PCs. Their, their engagement with it is very different. So, you know. The truth lies somewhere in the middle, but I, I think we as an industry, as a marketing industry, um, need to get out of that state of denial and, and realize that it's a, it is a media-neutral world. I gotta, just got to jump in here with one other thing. I, so, you know, specific examples, General Motors, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and just uh, last month at the Forrester Consumer Forum, we had the chief marketing officer of McDonald's all saying that they're going to move significant amounts of their budgets out of television. So those are some pretty important advertisers. And really, the, the only reason we, we haven't moved more away is because the metrics behind where to shift the money isn't there. Yeah. So yeah. it's you know, to, to jump, off, jump into the deep end and just shift money into a place where you have no idea what's going to happen with it. Uh, most of our clients, even when we take the risk, um, aren't always ready to take that risk themselves. And, and we're on record as predicting 2007 is the year. Watch the 2007 upfront. 
Uh, the even number years are a little distorted because they have the Olympics and elections in mm -hmm. them, which causes a lot of money to flow in. But take a look at the 2007 television advertising landscape and the 2007 upfront, and that's where you will really start to see a change happen. And, so, Betsy, uh, Google friend or foe? Okay, over here. Hi. Uh, Jonathan Carpenter. I work at Airborne Entertainment. We're a company that does uh, mobile entertainment um, creation and uh, distribution. Um, I have two questions. Actually, I have a lot more than two questions, so I'll try to fit all the other ones in the first question, and then the second question is kind of more focused. Um, <laughs> That's a trick. And, and the first question will be more kind of just a bunch of random statements that you can pick up on, so it's for the whole panel. Uh, first, uh, <laughs> sorry, yeah. No, so, so first, just uh, you know, something that we're learning at uh, Airborne is, uh, for example, Betsy, I think you would probably agree with this that it maybe is becoming increasingly true that um, entertainment uh, can include a lot more of informational content uh, if it's served up in the right way, and I mean that in more than just you know, say CNN in the early 90s. Uh, statistics, for example, if you take a look uh, at the baseball, at the MLB uh, website, for example, the success of that with, uh, you know, being driven a lot by statistics. Um, but really, uh, the point of this first question is, I was wondering who stands to win from this putting stuff out there strategy? Um, is it the independent people who now are empowered to put their stuff out there? Or is it, again, back to this point that it's been pushed around a lot. Uh, is it the aggregators or the portals or the intermediaries who have the power to take all of this stuff and say, we'll just provide this and the most successful stuff will come to the top and uh, we're the ones who are going to win from that because we're the ones who are providing it. Um, so those are aggregators, search engines. And that links into another question that I have, which is, um, can you create a community um, or uh, is it really just a matter of luck? And uh, does the community create itself? And so given that, again, does that mean that the aggregators, the ones who have the power to just put stuff out there and not really worry too much, are they the ones who end up winning uh, in the long run? Uh, which, again, comes to Andy's point about searchability um, and sort of linked to so-called long-tail economics, uh, which in a way I think challenges Josh's point on um, portals on television, because isn't that kind of like taking the web before Google? Couldn't you just apply Google to television, take, get rid of the remote control? You know, you, you got a keyboard in your living room in front of the TV set? Not at the moment. Not at the moment. But, but, that, but that brings me to my second very focused question. You're going to hate me for asking it this way, Josh. But uh, I, uh, I did actually I Google you it. as I'm sitting here. Um, and I, I, I found a presentation of yours from 1997. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right, now I do it. I love that. <laughs> We know to sign a Google phone, right? Where, where the hell did you find that? It's actually on the first page if you Google your name, so. Um, <laughs> but, what but were it's you just doing one, in 1997? One slide says how consumers will get their TV, and it goes until 2007. I won't say what your predictions were. I'm just curious what your predictions would be um, 10 years from now for that same question. <laughs> <laughs> So anyone want to tackle that barrage of information and questions? I think Josh definitely does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone takes a big step right. back. And, uh... You know, I told you I made a lot of predictions. Some of them were right, some of them were wrong. And you're still listening to me, so uh, let's see. How will you get your television in 2007? Well, first of all, uh, 
there are breakthroughs coming in interface. I'm going to point you in the direction of a product called uh, Hillcrest Home. Uh, let me just, I'm just interested. How many of you are familiar with uh, Hillcrest Labs? All right, we've got a few here. And this is a very technology savvy audience. So this is, it's an incredible thing. You may have read about the new uh, Nintendo Wii game system has these inertial wireless things. Well, this is similar. It's a remote control. looks like a bagel. And you hold it in your hand, and it's got, like, uh, it's got uh, three buttons and a scroll wheel on it. And when was the last time you saw a TV remote that had three buttons on it? Okay. <laughs> but the level, it's hard for me to communicate because you've got to hold it in your hand to understand it. But the level of precision that this gives you in interacting with the television is completely unlike any other current remote. You can sort of point at things, and it's combined with a graphical interface. So one of their demos is they show like a whole matrix of uh, DVD covers. And you'd be amazed. I mean, this is just the kind of stuff the Media Lab works on, where you, know, you can say, oh, yeah, there's that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, and you point at it, and you get it. This is the way that you get access to thousands, not millions, but thousands of pieces of video content uh, on the television, and I can also tell you that one of the announcements that's happening at CES will include this, and it's going to be one of the most interesting pieces of coverage that happens is this new interface. It does for television what a mouse does for the computer, and think about what computers were like before mice and windows and what they're like now. Now, that having been said, there's still a pretty important role for aggregators, and I think, you know, who has the power in eBay. Well, consumers have a lot of power. Uh, it's not real great for retailers, right, because people are buying stuff from each other instead of buying it from, from uh, you know, Target. But eBay has, generates an awful lot of revenue and creates an awful lot of power by creating this platform. And you said, can you create communities or is it just luck? Well, I don't think it's just luck. I think eBay has certain qualities that made it very successful. And when you do that, when you're eBay or YouTube or MySpace, and you create an environment that has exactly the right conditions for a community, it can take off very quickly. I, I was just in Brazil a couple of months ago, and everybody on the internet in Brazil uses Orkut, which is the uh, MySpace equivalent from, from uh, Google. And just, just the nature of that society is that People get interested in something, and then all the internet users, they all like overnight switch over to this, this new way of doing things. So yes, there is absolutely an ability to create community, but it's always about empowering the people who are participating in it. If you say, we're going to create a community, and it's going to have certain rules that are really rules that are the best thing for my company, well, that's what people, they just go somewhere else and start talking about your products on their own sites instead of on your site. Uh, so, yeah, there are winners here, and the winners will come from people like people who deploy the Hillcrest device and people who, who uh, create these sites that make it possible for individuals to interact with each other and share value, share ideas, find each other, see each other's preferences, you know, in as frictionless and uh, <coughs> fast a way possible. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, television 2007, uh, less... Less recorded view, I mean, less real-time live viewing, but there will still be a fair amount of that. More viewing of recorded content, recorded content, on-demand content from your cable operator, internet content, all 
sort of in a big, big uh, bin that you can look at anything you want anytime you want in there, and advertising continuing to be a very central part of the the delivery because all of us would really rather pay a smaller amount for our content and have the advertisers pay for it. But the form of those advertisements will have a lot more variety. It will be a lot fewer 30-second spots and a lot more product placements and sponsorships and, and uh, branded entertainment and, and uh, interactive ads and all sorts of variety that we don't have now in the, in the monoculture of, of uh, television advertising. I'll okay. post my presentation and you can ping me again in 10 years. <laughs> uh, just uh, something to add on the community front. I think the, the question isn't can you create communities. It's more around can you foster a community. I think absolutely you can foster a community, particularly online and uh, with a fan culture, with a fan base. Um, the issue that you're seeing right now is um, clients don't like the idea of fostering a community or a brand relationship. They want to control it. And you can, we're not in a place in the world where you can uh, control that relationship anymore. You can foster it. You can watch it. You can manage it. Uh, we've seen a couple instances in the press um, that have led to uh, a lot of backlash, deserved backlash, for creating communities that were basically fake, leading to the new term flog uh, instead of a blog, a fake blog. Uh, and so can you do it? Yes. And we, we've got some examples with some of our clients where we've done so quite successfully, not on a huge scale, not on a MySpace scale, but it's doable. Um, it's just getting to that point of uh, uh, taking the control and being, taking the, the, the control and the power out of your hands to manage everything and, and being okay with that. So Mark, you must have some insights about this from the Smallville point of view. What, what is your sense of upgrading community? Well, I think, you know, it all it, it kind of starts at that aggregator and, and kind of moves from there. And you, you start to, um, it really, it, it is about the story and it's about your relationship with the fans. And that, that, from that place, you actually foster out your community. And um, within that community, it, it starts to feed upon itself. It starts to, it starts to build upon itself, really. And I, I do think that as TV kind of moves off into the future and, and kind of gets closer to being your internet, you're gonna, ha you're gonna start at these like aggregator places where you first can get the message out. And then you, know, you can take these worlds deeper and deeper and your fans can kind of go down the rabbit hole with you um, to, to various places where the, the story, stories you know, that are on traditional media now, it's just it's X and Y. And pretty soon it's gonna go Z when you can play with this bagel and go inside of your television set, and you can do a couple things when you get in there. You know, you can click on the interact the the the, the newspaper that someone's reading in that in that space, or you can click on the Nikes in that space, and that's going to be good for the advertisers one day. And it's also going to be good for the storyteller one day because the shameless exposition that you usually hear about, where someone you know is basically retelling something that's really important to the story but really would never be told in a typical interaction between you know, two real people. Uh, you can allow your fan who really wants to get immersed into that world the time to do it um, by clicking on that computer screen and going in and reading that website. And that's what's happening now too more and more is, and it, it's in that sort of TiVo world where you talk about serialization and why serialization 
is, is better for in, in the TV world. People like sort of serialized television shows because people are investing. They're, they're making an investment now in what their programming is going to be. I love Lost, let's just say. You know, and, and this year, all this stuff came out. And I spent a lot of time on Lost. I go on message boards from Lost. I play the Lost game, let's say. So you know, that's a lot of time. Got to have a life, too, you know, outside of that. Um, so when you see what comes up this year, it's like, all right, how much more of my time am I going to invest? What other community am I going to dive into? Uh, Heroes is one this year that kind of, I think, has won that. Because the stories are compelling, and it all starts with the story. It's international. It's, glo it's definitely a global place. They're, they're, and Heroes is already putting it out there where they're allowing you to dig deeper. You can watch the show online, and then you can immediately go to a graphic novel and continue your story and dig deeper into the experience. And that fosters your community. Because now you're putting things out there in the world, in, in your universe. You know, you're putting the little, maybe it's a DNA strand, we're not sure what it is, thing out there that people are going to start talking about. You're, you're putting little Easter eggs out to your fans, and they're going to start discussing it. And discussion creates community. Um, and the longer and the more, the more things you give your fans to talk about, um, the stronger communication will get. Okay. In the back, there was a question. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Lynn Lucardo. I'm a playwright, and I also write about soap opera. I wanted to just comment. Well, I have a question, but first to comment. Um, Andy, the advertising guy, right? People do watch uh, sporting events two days after and sometimes 20 years after because there are all these uh, mechanisms to, uh, to watch uh, sporting events after the fact. But my real question was to follow up on something Betsy said and one of the other gentlemen said about Apple. Um, you said that at the end of the day they just, they make devices, they sell devices. And somebody else pointed out that they've become probably the major distributor of music is there any indication down the road, and I ask this question, I have no preconceived notions as to the answer. Is there any indication down the road that they want to move into content as well and complete loop? Well, you don't think being on the board of directors of Disney is enough? <laughs> exactly. I think so. No, I, actually, it's funny that you asked this now. I just yesterday was working with one of our researchers. And everyone's all excited about iTunes, and we did some math. Uh, uh, two years ago, the number of, of iTunes sold per iPod sold, if you looked at the cumulative amount, was 20 songs per iPod. The total number of iPods has increased now by a factor of like four since then. And the number of iTunes sold per iPod sold is still 20, which tells me that, that uh, they're still making most of their money from the devices. And while the total contribution of iTunes to Apple's uh, Top line, Apple sales is significant now. The amount of profit that they get from iTunes is tiny compared to the amount of profit they get from selling iPods. And they sold 8 million iPods last quarter. That's a lot of iPods. So uh, I think Apple is, has, what Apple has figured out is that if you want to make money as a device company, you have to wrap the device in all of this content and applications and make the device experience a fantastic device experience, but you know they're happy to let to let uh, you know uh, Universal Music and Disney and uh, and CBS take all the risks on the content business mm -hmm. because that's the problem with the content business is that 
that you know you throw a whole bunch of stuff at the at the wall, and if one of them's a hit, you look like a hero, and if they all miss, then you're NBC last year. Um, you know, and well, I mean, you know, I, I, I gave a presentation at ABC about three years ago, uh, and they, I got stuck on one slide. They wouldn't let me go, and I said, why are you all looking at this slide? Like, like there's something weird about it. And they said, it was a list of programs that, that people had watched on TiVo on a specific night, and they said, this is the first slide we've seen in the last five years that had two ABC shows at the top. Okay. Well, now ABC is, is fantastic and NBC is down. And that's, that's what it's like in the content business. You're only as good as your last hit. <laughs> Whereas, uh, you know, Apple, I think, has got a brilliance about devices and experiences, and you can't do that without content. They're, I think they're happy to let everybody else take the content risks. Well, Josh, that last comment uh, sort of picks up on a question I've been wanting to ask the yeah. panel about ratings. Uh, what's the role of Nielsen's ratings in this current economy? Nielsen's just started publicly announcing uh, TiVo users and so forth, data the industries had some access to previously. It shows that some shows have been seriously undercounted. Uh, the, question, the question is, uh, how do you weigh that? If you're a network, do you, is, is the value still in the, the broadcast ratings because that's where the advertising revenue comes? Do we factor in these other sources as we measure the success of a program? Can we envision a show being produced and put on the air that does badly on Nielsen's? But is generating dramatic revenue online and through these other channels. How, what is what does this do to the ratings role in the broadcast scenario? Josh, you, you may know the answer. Maybe someone else on the yeah. panel knows the answer to this. I don't. Um, how much of Nielsen's TV business is still based on diaries versus? The, they're they're eliminating most of that. They've now got local people meters in in most of the big uh, DMAs, most of the big metropolitan areas, and the national ratings have been on. People meter for a while, although they do, I think they still do sweeps, uh, which is diary based. But, but, but it's uh, becoming a lot more. Yeah, automated. I mean, they've they've basically made the public statement that they're going to fix this. But if Nielsen were doing the polling for elections, we would just now be hearing that it looks <laughs> like Florida went to Bush, and that, that Gore was not going to be the president. How many right. How many Nielsen families are there? There's well, there's, there's eight thousand people in their national panel. The, the, Nielsen is, moves very slowly to monitor these new technologies. And unfortunately, the Nielsen methodology, was, which is very much based on uh, your home, is challenged by the fact that we're now consuming media in all these different ways on all these different devices. And they announced a plan to uh, to monitor all these devices. It all sounds really good, but, but you have to keep in mind that they came out with their DVR ratings for the first time two years ago. So that's 2004 versus when DVRs first came out was 1999. Mm -hmm. And their first try at it, the, the networks and the advertisers said, no, this is completely inadequate, and it took, they had to go back and retool it for six months okay. before it came out. Now they're doing the same thing with VOD, but ask yourself, this, okay. Uh, there's 3,000 video on demand programs at, at Comcast. Okay. In any given month, somebody watches in a given area, say Boston or Philadelphia, 95% of those programs get watched. Some of them get watched three times, some of them get watched 10 times, some of them get watched 100 times, some of them get watched, you know, 
2,000 times if it happens to be the uh, NFL highlights or the Sopranos. Now, Nielsen has a sampling methodology, which means that you know, one in 10,000 people in the United States is a Nielsen family. How can you possibly take that kind of sampling methodology and put it into a place where some of this stuff is only watched three times? If that family happens to watch that program, it looks like a lot of people watched, and if they don't, you miss it completely. So their, their measurement methodology is completely inadequate for the 21st century and the way people consume media. There are a whole lot of other sources of data now. I mean, if, if you know, uh, there's a company called RentTrack that, yep. that tracks video them. on demand, and they actually have a metric on every time you watch something, they aggregate that with all the other people, and they can say, well, 27 people in Philadelphia watched this program during this time period. But now the problem for an advertiser or for a network that's distributing through all this content is how do I take all of this measurement and all these different media and somehow assemble it into what's the value of this media property. Uh, the, the measurement is like the Achilles heel here. And uh, last year when we asked people about video on demand advertising, advertisers, they told us the main reason they're not doing it is because the measurement isn't up to snuff. Justin and I were talking earlier, uh, one grand experiment that I'd like to put into the market is just make Nielsen disappear for about six months and see what happens. Um, <laughs> Mostly because I think there's, there's a couple of... It's a crutch. There, yeah, it is, it, it's a crutch it's a for the industry. It, um, I think it's also a bit of a, uh, of a slow life support drip for those wanting things to remain relatively constant, uh, combined with the fact that people are looking for an absolute metric. And, and absolute metrics, I don't know if they will ever exist. Um, uh, so we're getting past the idea that you can put some, filter something through a black box and know what your answer is to the place where, at best, you can aggregate all this information, look at it holistically, and try to figure out what it means. So uh, I think that's, that's a big issue. The, where Nielsen's going, where we're going as an ad agency, and where a lot of our peers are going, is uh, stepping away from um, where. If, if Nielsen's about where are people, um, we're trying to peel back the onion and, and go deeper, so um, how and why giving context to people's relationship to the content, not just um, viewership or time spent, but getting to this idea of engagement. Why, why am I engaged with, with CSI, with Desperate Housewives, with Discovery Channel? Um, what drives that? And then how can you connect that back to who, whatever client you're uh, serving um, and, and get to a connecting point where the, that brand that you're advertising is related to the content, not just the, the, the placement and the point in time where, where your audience is. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. How much does it cost to put an ad on Google? Nothing. You put it up. Now, if somebody clicks on the ad, then it costs something. Mm -hmm. But that's okay because you're like, oh, well, they're coming through to my website. So this is the engagement. I actually got some value out of it. At the end of the month, when you say, how much did it cost me? Well, I got, you know, 2,961 people to come to the website. I paid 50 cents for each one. And of the ones who come, came to the website, 10% of them bought something, so that was worth it. That's really what television advertising needs to get to. And it is starting to get there. You look at the showcases on video on demand and on TiVo, you're actually getting people to click and spend a whole lot more time with your, your brand. And that, that measurement of value may be more valuable in the long term than some fleeting impression 
that's based on a Nielsen number that uh, that you may have less and less confidence in as time goes by. Any other panelists have thoughts on grand vision question? Well, I I guess the schedule isn't necessary to have community and uh, shared experience. I mean, Harry Potter is not something that everyone tunes into at the same time, and yet it's had an incredible impact on our culture, and everyone experienced it separately. Uh, and I think that's what's happening with these television programs is that, that we don't, you know, even news, if your experience of news is about what's on Google News and my experience is what's on the CBS Evening News and somebody else's is about, uh, you know, what's on CNET, well, there's a certain percolating to the top of this stuff. Uh, I, I, when I was in Brazil, I was amazed they were, uh, some of the top internet people were on stage with me that were Brazilians, and, and they, they were talking about the long tail. <laughs> I was blown away. I said, wow, you know, long tail's a big idea in Brazil, right? And they didn't, they, they got the book, they got, they, they read Wired, they went on the internet, and they learned about the long tail, and they all talked to each other about it. And here was this meme that had been very successful, and they didn't need to experience it the same way that we did in the United States. They could still be a part of that community. I think that oh, movies and TV—it's—it is. It's like movies and yeah. movies and books is a perfect example. It's you have now you have time. You know, not a lot of people watched our show because it was on the CW, but tons of people watch our, buy our DVDs or catch up to it on TiVo. And so there's just time. You know, did, when did you watch Lost? It was great to watch it. 22 straight hours through, you know, <laughs> that was fun, you know, but I didn't catch it every single night. And, and, and then I think also the fact that instead of having that water cooler moment that you, that you sort of used to have, you have, it's constantly going on throughout the day because someone is going just through that one news story from their My Yahoo page and they're passing it on to their friends through their mass viral email list. And that's your experience throughout the day. Um, is you're communicating with your friends who are all over the world now, and you can IM with them. And I think that's sort of where we're, you know, where entertainment's kind of, it's, it's just much more fluid now. And that really is a difference. There is something, I guess, if you, uh, if, if, if you want to be nostalgic, there's something, a shame about uh, the fact that, you know, the water cooler talk about what happened on Friends last night is pretty much going away. Uh, so there's not that kind of global, or at least, you know, from our culture, from an American culture, that connectivity with content that everyone's talking about the next day, um, to an extent. But to your point, it's, it's just really just shifting. So uh, from one respect, one regard, uh, people are talking and people are much more engaged. So the idea of the one-upmanship of finding the coolest thing and sharing it to your friends becomes a big deal. Um, the social currency. Yeah, the, the, an ex, a social exchange of content, I think, is an interesting thing to look at. So, the, so the water cooler talk is more like, did you see this? Um, <laughs> did you not see that? And it's spreading virally, um, and people sharing that way. Definitely have, you know, we don't have that mass community through through media anymore. Um, it's it's fragmenting. It's becoming niche. It's becoming more target segments or or, or, or community based, I should say. Uh, but at the, at the same time, now you've got that global connectivity, so it's not just a, a, an American pop culture phenomenon.
phenomenon. It, it's really extending elsewhere. So um, I think it's, it's, a mor it's morphing, it's changing, um, and, but we are moving away from a cultural shift. So that water cooler uh, conversation changes significantly.